0: The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, good morning, everyone. We trust that, uh, thank you, first of all, for coming out and bearing with the heat some ways, this would be the perfect day to preach hellfire and brimstone, wouldn't it? (laughs) You're a sinner, now walk outside. uh, So anyway, but we're not going to do that today, at least not directly. It struck me as I've been listening to the Word, as you did, that Steve read for us and the songs that we just sang, that we've just heard the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as Corey just mentioned, more importantly, is in Romans Is the power of God onto salvation. Normally we think of grace and mercy and the gospel as being a New Testament phenomenon. But it is not. The gospel, God's grace, the gospel begins in Genesis 1 and doesn't end until Revelation 22. It is all gospel. It is all Christ. So what we're going to do today is hear what you just heard already, and you've been singing the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament, and that being from Psalm 130. So if you turn in your Bibles there, and if indeed you're going to use your Bibles, I encourage you to have it in your lap and keep it open, because what we're going to do is just walk through that wonderful psalm verse by verse, and you might want it for reference as we go. It is a most beautiful psalm. And if we read it carefully, and we consider it prayerfully, we can't help, it can't help but touch our hearts, the hearts of every one of us this morning. Many people consider the book of Psalms to be their favorite book of the Bible, and it certainly is mine, especially this morning. The Psalms were Israel's songbook, and therefore filled with beautiful and lyrical poetry, and yet Songs and poetry, though they may be, we need to remember as we read and study through the Psalms that these are Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. God's Word to us that impresses on us many things, impresses on our hearts many things, including God's sovereignty over creation, His sovereignty over the nations, His sovereignty over His people, and most personally and in a very real sense, over the individual hearts of men and women. Although written long ago, we can't help but find a personal and emotional and a spiritual connection with these ancient believers in Yahweh who are really our brothers and sisters in Christ as they struggle through, struggle through very real-life circumstances. These are real people, and they were living through real issues, and they were in need of real mercy and grace just like we are. The Psalms give voice to our own trials and tribulations, even as they offer us hope, reminding us that even through our frailties, our faults, and all our failures, God, in His steadfast love, showers His children with mercy and grace upon grace. Psalm 115.13 tells us that God will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. I hope that's an encouraging little verse for you. This is exemplified by Psalm 130, as it has impacted so many from the most well-known of our theologians, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, to countless ordinary church folks like you and like me. It's been written into scores of hymns and larger works from the world's greatest composers, from Mozart to the Gettys version that we just sang. Among those hymn writers was the reformer Martin Luther. Of course, we know Martin Luther primarily from writing, as a hymn writer, primarily as writing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which he takes from Psalm 46. But maybe his greatest hymn, although his not necessarily the most well-known, was composed from this psalm, from Psalm 130. He entitled it, From the Depths of Woe, echoing the words of verse 1. And then what his song does is do what we're going to do this morning. It just walks through the hymn and focuses on God's mercy and grace. So listen to the second stanza. To wash away the crimson stain, grace, grace alone availeth. Our works, alas, are all in vain. In much the best life faileth. No man can glory in thy sight. All must alike confess thy might and live alone by mercy. Luther was asked once by friends what his favorite psalms were, and he named four. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 143, and of course Psalm 130, or I wouldn't have mentioned it here. He called those songs Pauline or Pauline psalms because the Apostle Paul quoted these psalms in the book of Romans even as he was writing of justification by faith alone. As James Montgomery Boyce pointed out, Psalm 130 is one of the best expositions in the Old Testament of the way of salvation by grace on the basis of Christ's atonement. So it is a Pauline psalm. Psalm 130 is also one that's the sixth of seven penitential psalms, which are psalms of confession and sorrow over sin that compel you and I as we go forward and we study them, we look at them, we meditate on them, to look forward into our own sin and turn, as the psalmist does, back to the Lord for His mercy and His forgiveness. And it is also the 11th in the series of the Ascent Psalms that speak of God's sovereign protection and His preservation of Israel over all her enemies, all those nations that sought to destroy her. But there is a difference here because this psalm speaks not of outside enemies, but of the enemy within, the enemy of sin, which is far and away the greater threat. As other psalms tell of how God delivered Israel from kings and armies, Psalm 130 tells us how God, His steadfast love and mercy, delivers His people from their sins. So as we look at this wonderful psalm, we're going to look at it in four different uh, sections this morning. The first one is the sinner's lament, verses 1 and 2. God's grace and forgiveness, verses 3 and 4. Waiting on the Lord for mercy, as we just sang, verses 5 and 6. And the assurance of God's amazing grace. Verses 7 and 8. So follow along with me, if you will, as we read Psalm 130. This is the word of the Lord. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you... There is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, for the watchman more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Pray with me. Well, dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, seeking your truth, seeking your wisdom. Lord, as we walk through this wonderful psalm, as we do with all of the truth of your word, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to it, to hear it, not from a man in a pulpit, but from the Holy Spirit from inside us. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning, that that all of us will hear your words. And in so doing, Lord, take it to heart and apply it into our lives, and importantly, to take it out to the world who needs to hear that there is plentiful redemption in you. So be with us, Lord, as we turn to your word. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The psalmist's words here in verse 1 are a cry out to the Lord. Some of you know this cry, as I do. It is a cry of deep lament, of sorrow, born out of a desperate need to be rescued from impending ruin. It is a cry of desperation. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. I mentioned before, psalms are poetry, and they are are, uh, song. But these words are more than the words of a poet. His cry is one of deep anguish that could only come from the authentic experience of being crushed under the weight of despair. psalm is known by the title De Profundus, which is Latin for those first key words in the verse, and it literally means out of the depths. Throughout the Old Testament, to be in the depths is to be in deep waters, to be floundering, and this was particularly important to Israel. They were not a seafaring people. And when their enemies came against them, it pushed their back against the sea. So these words were particular, had particular meaning to the original uh, hearers of this psalm. Figuratively speaking, the psalmist is sinking. And with his last breath, he cries out for mercy. We hear this often in Scripture. David expressed the same desperation in Psalm 69 when he wrote, Save me, O Lord, for the waters have come up to my neck. I have come onto deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. Now, this particular psalm, we don't know who the author is. Therefore, we don't know what the historical context is. So we don't know exactly what his situation is. Although it is clear from verse 4 that his cries out to the Lord are for mercy and deliverance from the ravages and the guilt from his sin. The struggle is not necessarily what we might call normal or occasional sin that we all experience as God's people, although that is certainly possible. All believers in Jesus Christ, even the greatest of our heroes of the faith, have always been subject to temptation and sin, and more often than we are willing to admit, uh, we we have given in to that temptation and sin. Even the Apostle Paul lamented that. Steve just read this in Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. But here the psalmist's anguish seems to be not over occasional sin, but willful, intentional, and habitual sin that has captivated his mind and it has taken hold of his desires. And until this time, he has ignored the guilt, that he feels, and the conviction of the Lord. In fact, he has run from the Lord instead of running to the Lord. This, too, is not unusual. We recall Jonah, who having literally run from the Lord's command, found himself literally in the the belly of a great fish, lamenting in Jonah 2. And the words sound real familiar, don't they? You cast me into the deep, and the flood surrounded me. And the waters closed in over me to take my life. Sin has consequences. All sin has consequences. For the unbeliever in Jesus Christ, according to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, that is, what our sin has earned for us, is death. What the book of Revelation calls the second death. That is, the eternal death one in unimaginable suffering. And if you are here with, uh, without Christ this morning, you are indeed in the deepest of deaths, and God's wrath for your sin awaits you. So even as we begin looking at Psalm 130, we urge you this morning to cry out to the Lord for mercy from the depths of your sin. And from Him you will find that there is plentiful Redemption, but even for the believer, sin has its consequences. Some we might call natural consequences uh, that we all face. In a societal societal sense, if you break the law, many of which are sins, you may be arrested. You may spend time in jail. You may end up uh, paying large fines. In a relational sense, if you have an illicit affair, if you commit adultery, you lose your spouse's trust, at least. And very often, you lose your marriage altogether. And in a personal sense, if you treat your body badly, rather than the temple of the Holy Spirit that it is, if you eat poorly, you drink too much, you smoke, you compromise your health, and so forth and so on. But there are also spiritual consequences. When a believer sins, there is instant conflict between the evil of your sin and the righteousness of God that dwells within you because of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, you may feel many things. You may experience many things. Maybe an uneasiness in your heart and mind. Maybe confusion. Loneliness. Guilt. And of course, conviction. As we read in 2 Corinthians 6.4, it asks the rhetorical question, what fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer is simple. There isn't any. They are contrary to one another, and they conflict with one another. And with that conflict, our relationship with Christ, and even the relationship with His church, is strained. Even as a disobedient, a disobedient child uh, strains his or her relationship with his father and with their family. But it's good to remember the child the disobedient child has not forfeited or lost his place in the family nor does the christian in the family of god but still there is conflict and hopefully gentle and loving correction will change the child's behavior and if not more severe discipline may be necessary to encourage the child's repentance and so it is with the lord John sixteen eight reminds us that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And when we respond to that con- conviction by confessing our sins, you know from John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins, right, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then by God's grace and his mercy, that conflict is resolved. There is reconciliation and right fellowship with God is restored. However, when the conviction of the Holy Spirit is ignored, sin becomes malignant. And depending on that sin, it can drain finances, it can threaten employment, destroy relationships, even destroy our physical and our emotional well being. Psalm 138, another penitential psalm expresses this. David expresses it. There is no soundness in my body because of your indignation. That's God's indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. And he goes on in verses 7 and 8. For my sides are filled with burning. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Now these things may be from spiritual consequences as well or they may be brought about through the discipline of the Lord as he continues to call the sinner back to repentance. What may, what may be the most painful act of discipline by the Lord occurs when God seems, and I want to impress upon you that word seems, but when God seems to have abandoned us, leaving us alone in our struggles. Maybe you've experienced that. I have. And like a lost child in a strange place, separated from his father and helpless and alone, fear and desperation set in. And with that comes crying, Father, where are you? Psalms speak to this as well. Surprise, surprise. Psalm 88, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. There is no lonelier place for the child of God to be than all alone in the darkness of sin, overwhelmed by its consequences and seemingly alienated from God. It is from that place of pain and desperation that the psalmist now cries out for mercy and he cries out with what the Bible calls godly grief. Godly grief is sorrow over one's sin, sorrow that emanates from heartfelt conviction that we have offended our righteous God, and indeed we do, because even the smallest of sins offends his righteousness. And that is where that conflict comes from. The purpose of godly grief is clear. In 2 Corinthians seven ten, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief is grief from conviction brought by the work of the Holy Spirit, which in the unbeliever brings about salvation, and in the believer brings renewed fellowship with our Lord. And that's where the psalmist is as he writes this psalm. He's being pressed down by godly grief, sinking into the depths of the high waters of his sin. But now, at the end of his last breath, he surrenders. Verse 2, I cry out to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let, the ears of atten- let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. These pleas for mercy are a plea for forgiveness. Verse 2 is a quote from Solomon's prayer at the commissioning of the temple, found in 2 Chronicles 6, where Solomon asked the Lord to forgive his people whenever they would come before him humbly in repentance. This is verse 36, 2 Chronicles 6. If they sin against you, listen to this, for there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them. If they repent with all of their mind and all of their heart, forgive your people who have sinned against you. Those words remind us of Psalm 51.4 when David says, against you and only you have I sinned. Our, we can sin against each other, and we can even sin against our own body. But our sin is first and foremost against our righteous and just God. And then, verse forty, still in Second Chronicles six, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And it's abundantly clear from the rest of the psalm, as we talk about it, that God heard the psalmist's cries for mercy, granted him that forgiveness, and rescued him from the depths of despair. I want to stop here just for a minute to consider something, and that's the fact that God granted mercy and forgiveness to this one so steeped in sin, even as we are, and that points ultimately to the believer's assurance of salvation. Many believers, maybe all believers, at one time or another fear that our sin is so great, it is uh, so numerous, that we we may lose or maybe even have already lost our salvation. However, the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 130 says no. No. Consider David, the man after God's own heart, who was guilty of adultery and complicit in murder. And yet we're told in 2 Samuel, he was told in 2 Samuel 12, 13, that the Lord has put your sin away. You shall not die. The apostle Peter denied his Lord three times. However, even before Peter's sin, Jesus promised Peter forgiveness and restoration. Luke twenty-two, thirty-two. 32. Jesus told him, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We read of these and others throughout history who committed terrible sins. And yet God in His infinite grace forgave them. He restored them as examples to us of God's limitless grace that he lovingly bestows on every believer. We find ultimate assurance, our eternal security, in the words of Jesus himself from John 10. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because the very fact that God pursues convicts and disciplines the wayward believer, even to the point of taking him into the depths of despair, assures us that in his steadfast love, he will never let you go. As he told Israel many times, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I know that because I was that wayward believer that we're talking about here. Many years ago, I fell into a a difficult period of depression. I really have no idea the cause. Could have been any number of things. I was specializing in crimes against children. Did that for many years in the sheriff's department. The effects of, of disability on our family and uh, those types of things, who knows? And in, in one sense, I guess from a counseling perspective, that might be a really important thing. But in one sense, it wasn't important the cause wasn't that important but what was important was my response to my depression and my response was the wrong one after some time feeling desperate to feel good for only, if only for a minute i allowed myself to fall into a season of sin and the conviction of the holy spirit was immediate and it was intense And friends, I recognized it, but I ignored it. Feeling good just seemed to be better. Soon the depression progressed into serious anxiety. that began to affect every area of my life, including my family and my job. And I praise God to this day for a loving and patient wife and family who stood by my side because they knew I was going through this. And it was difficult for them. And yet they stood by my side. I I tried to blame everything and everyone for my troubles, including God. I literally shook my fist in God's face and said, how dare you? I don't recommend that as a course of action. But I knew full well in my heart that this was my sin that was dragging me down even further into greater and greater depths of depression, anxiety. I wasn't sleeping. I was beaten down. I was fearful of losing my family and my job, and blaming others simply didn't work. So I tried every other remedy I could think of, and that included secular counseling, counseling, various medications, none of which produced any meaningful results. In fact, with each failure, I dropped deeper and deeper into depression until finally, truly out of the depths. I surrendered and cried out to God for mercy and forgiveness. Relief was immediate. The sense of freedom was overwhelming. I mentioned before that there are consequences to all sin, and it took time, quite a bit of time actually, for the depression to actually lift. But the weight of sin that had deepened my depression was gone, and I was in my soul At peace with God once again. And it's a longer story, but it was those things, this was over a period of quite a few years, that ultimately led to my going to seminary and by God's grace allowing me to serve you here in this church. Looking back, I learned what maybe some of you need to learn that the discipline of the Lord is born out of his deep love for us. And although I didn't like it, and it was truly painful, it was and is clear that he did it for my spiritual well-being, for my spiritual good. And if you are this morning where I was, I encourage you to take heart from Hebrews 2, 5, and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. God's discipline is intended to restore your right relationship with Him, even as it leads to your sanctification, growing you as it grew me, and is still growing me, into the image of Christ. We read this in Hebrews 12. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. Here's an understatement. The moment of, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those have, who have been trained by it. So friends, if you're struggling with this, go to the Lord. Are you under discipline? And if so, recognize it for what it is and turn to Him for repentance. The writer of Psalm 34.4 wrote, as I would have then, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Which brings us back to our text. As our psalmist, having been delivered from the depths of despair, is now overcome, he's overwhelmed not by his sin, but by God's amazing grace. And he experiences his awe of the Lord with a rhetorical question. Verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He knows the answer. So do you. It's an emphatic no one. The Hebrew word mark here in this passage means to observe, to record, to preserve. It carries the idea of a storing up, of a creating or recreating a memorial or keeping a record. So how terrible would it be if God marked or held any one of our sins against us, much less all of them? To put this in a little perspective, ask yourself this question. What would it be like if I was to come face to face with God right now to give an accounting for my life? And by the way, Romans 14, 12 says that we all will. Could I stand before a holy and just God with any sense of my own righteousness at all? What would your answer be? But we do try to justify our sin, don't we? Claiming some sense of our own righteousness, minimizing it, excusing it, even denying our sin. How often do we, how often do you convince yourselves, or at least try to, that your sin just isn't that bad? Look at the other guy. I'd never do anything like that. But the psalmist didn't wake up one morning in the depths of despair, did he? He was most certainly aware of his sin that in time took control over his mind and his heart. Mark this well, my friends. We may minimize sin, but Scripture does not. Iniquity. Is another word for sin, and it is defined in Scripture as perversity, depravity, and guilt. As one commentator aptly put it, we often talk about mistakes and bad decisions. God's Word talks about evil, wickedness, and vice. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 reminds us no one or none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, not even you. Friends, if God marked our iniquities, even the most godly of us could never stand before a holy and a righteous God. And although the believer can be assured of his or her eternal security, Psalm 130 calls on us to always be vigilant, always cognizant of our sin, never taking it lightly, always ready to confess and repent our sin before the Lord. And our battle against sin is indeed a daily battle, and we are called to fight that battle at all costs. Both Romans eight and Colossians three call on every believer to mortify or to put death in our uh, put to death sin in our bodies. As the Puritan theologian John Owen put it, always be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Thankfully, God does not mark the iniquities of the believer in Jesus Christ. But how can we be sure? How can we know? Well, some of the greatest words in the Bible are the smallest words. They are almost always transition words that lead us to a complete understanding of the passage. And that is the case here in verse 4, with the smallest and inconsequential of words. And it leads the repentant sinner to our eternal hope. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand but with you? There is forgiveness. This is the good news of the gospel. That that with God there is forgiveness. Forgiveness that saves. Forgiveness that brings reconciliation with God. Forgiveness that sanctifies. Forgiveness that assures us of our eternal salvation. We hear it again in the New Testament, again from Paul in Ephesians 2. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What comes next? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. where the meaning of marking iniquities means to record or preserve, to forgive means to let go, to keep no longer, and to pardon. Friends, when God forgives the repentant sinners, He returns, he returns slaves of sin to slaves of Christ. He sets condemned men free, turning sinners into saints. And it is all the work of the Lord. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. Now we love to sing the song Amazing Grace, which we will do at the end of the service. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And here is the pure grace of God. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. In our sin and rebellion, we we would never even have thought to seek out salvation. Even if we had in the depravity of our sin, we could have and would have done nothing about it. But God, being rich in mercy, Shows us before the foundation of the world, called us to himself, convicted us of our sin, leads us into repentance, forgives us, and according to Hebrews 10.10, 10, is sanctifying us, and will one day glorify him in his presence. That is amazing grace. Listen to C.S. Lewis's account of his conversion. It's from Surprised by Joy. I'm sure many of you have read it. You must picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had come upon me. In the fall term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most reluctant convert in all England. Is that not a sweet testimony? Our forgiveness of sin is all the work of God's grace alone, the free gift of God. The term free gift appears four times in the New Testament, all in Romans 5 and 6. The free gift of grace that justifies us through the work of Jesus Christ and reconciles us Reconciles reconciles us with God now and for all eternity. Romans 6.23 is the summation of God's free gift of grace and mercy towards sinners for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. But we must not, we dare not, overlook the fact that although our redemption is a free gift of God, it did not come without cost. 1 Corinthians 6:19 and 20 reminds us you are not your own you were bought with a price Romans 3:23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall present tense and fall short of the glory of God and according to Romans 6:23 there's a penalty for that for that sin and that penalty is eternal death the second death as we mentioned before Scripture makes it clear that we are not only sinners, we are slaves to our sin, condemned and unable to pay the penalty ourselves. Our debt is simply too great and our resources too small. Our only hope is for that debt to be forgiven and for us to be pardoned. But here is the problem. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That means that someone, a pure and righteous one, would have to die in our place, would have to die in your place. But where in a world full of sinners was one sufficiently righteous that would be willing to shed his blood, literally to die for the sins of other men? Certainly none of us qualified. How can condemned men be a sacrifice for other condemned men? This is the essence of God's grace and mercy, that even though our sin was a personal affront, even though it is a rebellion against a righteous God, it was God Himself in His steadfast love, and in His steadfast love for me, and for His people Israel, and for His church, who would provide the once-for-all sacrifice through the blood of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 6 through 8, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's law and in doing so became the only qualified sacrifice for sin which indeed He took on Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That is an unfair exchange, my friends. What What is called propitiation, the great exchange, Jesus taking our sin as if it were His, granting us our righteousness as if it were ours. But indeed, it is not. It is His righteousness. That's why the Reformers called it an alien righteousness. And He did so willingly. Jesus said in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising The shame. The death that Jesus died for us was a gruesome death, beyond our comprehension, certainly. Isaiah 53, you know it well. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds you were healed on that cross, and taking our sin as if it were His own. And far beyond the physical pain of the crucifixion, which was incredible, God bore the full fury of God's wrath for the sins of the world, your sins and my sins, to the point where His holy and righteous Father had to turn away from His beloved Son. That's how evil your sin is. That is how great the sacrifice that Jesus did for you. That is that amazing grace. And when we hear that, we hear Jesus on the cross cry out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with that, he said it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Our debt was now paid in full. That is why the psalmist can rightfully say that God does not mark the iniquities of those He redeems. So if God doesn't mark our iniquities, what happens to them? We're going back to the Psalms. Psalm 103, 11 to 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, so far does does He remove our transgressions from us. We no longer need to be in the depths, Because according to Micah 7, our merciful God has cast our sin into the depths. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Our psalmist, back to our psalm, ends verse 4 with this. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The word fear here doesn't mean to be frightened. Rather, it carries uh, carries the sense of awe, of reverence, of worship. Charles Spurgeon translated this verse, There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be loved and worshipped and served. When we understand who God is in all His grandeur, His majesty, and in His holiness, And when we understand, therefore, how we are and the depths of our sin from which He saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ, we cannot help but come before Him in humble adoration, praise, and worship. And although we will inevitably sin again, still He has forgiven us and will forgive us. But as we walk in the light as He is in the light, we will be drawn to Him more quickly in that forgiveness, and that keeps us from going to the places we don't want to go into those depths. Well, the rest of the psalm is an expression of faith and hope that looks forward to the day when, as we read in Ephesians 1, when in the fullness of time, God will unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Psalm 134 and 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits And in His Word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. So what is the psalmist waiting for? Well, as believers in Jesus Christ, this side of eternity, we all live in and will continue to live in the tension of what is often called the now and not yet. We talk about sanctification, we talk about positional sanctification for God. He sees us sanctified and holy because of the work of Christ. But we are in this world still working out our salvation, aren't we? Which is working towards our sanctification and growing more and more daily into the image of Christ. The now and the not yet. Although Jesus has declared victory over sin and death for now... We live in a sinful world, and as long as we do, we will experience pain, and the suffering brought about that sin until that time. Revelation 21, the Lord comes, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, the now positionally and the not yet. He has declared victory. He has won the victory, but the battle is still being won on our side, and in that we have faith. Although Jesus Himself said in Luke 17 that the kingdom is in, is in your midst of you and He's speaking of now still the full joy and peace of His kingdom will not be fully mani- manifested until His return. Those are the things that our psalmist is waiting for, and he's waiting with great expectation and great anticipation, even as we should. He waits with eagerness on the Lord for the fulfillment of his mercy when God brings an end once and for all to the effects of sin in our lives and in the world. This is the hope of every believer as we watch and wait for the time when our Lord Jesus Christ comes again in final victory. 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can't help but take notice of that little phrase in the middle of those two verses. In his word, I hope. The psalmist's focus is no longer on the world or anything in it. His hope is only in the true and powerful word of, word of God, word of the Lord. The writer of Psalm 119 expressed the same trust and dependence on the word of God, actually through the whole thing, but verse 105, Your word it's a lamp unto my feet there is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Many years later in his high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father. He's praying on behalf of the disciples and all who will believe because of them. That's you and me. And then Jesus prays to the Father to sanctify them, to sanctify us in the truth, because his word is truth. It is only from his word that we can have hope. This is not the, world, the hope that the world experiences, which is really little more than wishful thinking. Rather, the hope of the believer is an absolute certainty. Jesus Christ himself is the only hope for the world and the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to his people. This is why the psalmist lovingly writes in verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. The picture put before us here is a night watchman. The watchman on the wall of the city. He's working what we would call the graveyard shift. The night is long. he must pay attention. He's working hard. It's long and it's arduous. And the stakes are high. Therefore, it is stressful as well. And he keeps watch for the enemy during the dark of the night because that is the most opportune Time for the enemy to attack. And here the watchman, weary from his labor, waits in great anticipation for the morning light, which is both certain and predetermined to arrive. The morning will come because God has ordained it to do so. And with it will come the light of day and an end to the threat when our watchman will be able to stand down. Rest from all his labor. We notice he says it twice. Most often in Scripture when things are said twice, it's for effect. And I think that's part of this too. But think about his position when we take this to heart. And his longing for his Lord to come. Longing for the shift to end. Longing for the rest that only God can bring. And he's saying it to himself that second time. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen in the morning. More than watchmen in the morning. That is how we must long, or should long, for the coming of our Lord. But given all that the Lord has done for him, the psalmist now calls on the people of God to the same hope that he has experienced Oh O Israel, and I don't believe it's inappropriate to read that, O church, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him there is plentiful redemption, plentiful redemption that covers our sin, that frees us from guilt, frees us from the wrath of God, because Jesus took that on Himself. With Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel. He will redeem the church. He will redeem His children, you and me, from all our iniquities. The the psalmist calls on each one of us to hope in the Lord, Because even as God richly lavished mercy on him, so God in his steadfast and unfailing love will do that for all those who call upon his name. That is the reason for our hope. Hope that is the certainty, the unconditional and irrevocable love of God to his people. His steadfast love for His people through Jesus Christ, God's ultimate gift of peace, is our assurance that He will never abandon us. Because in Christ there is plentiful redemption. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever uh, believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice that there are no qualifiers here. There is no sin too great. And there are no sinners too far gone that he cannot and will not redeem. Romans 10:9 tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in his grace and his mercy, he forgives all sins, not some sins or not certain sins. Listen to another psalm, Psalm 103, from which we have a song we sing often. Bless the Lord, O my soul and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Well, as we end our time together this morning, just remind you of a couple things. We spoke of earlier, Psalms of Ascent, this psalm, as well as others, speak of assurance and how God protects and preserves His people. In the context of Psalm 130 is Israel. However, it does apply as well to the church and to you and me, and we know that from 1 Peter 2.9, that the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And as we've seen this morning, God promises to preserve every individual believer in Jesus Christ until that time when he calls us to himself, when our faith finally and forever becomes sight. However, if you are here this morning without Christ, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, you have no such promise. You are in the depths of sin from which you cannot escape. You are not under the Lord's discipline this morning. You are under God's judgment and His wrath. And if you continue in your sin, your only promise is one of spiritual death, which is conscious, torment in hell. Now we don't like to talk about hell I don't like to talk about hell, although we must, because it's a forewarning to the unbeliever of the fate that awaits you, if you die without Christ. But there is good news. It's the good news of the gospel, that through the free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ, there is for you plentiful redemption. If only you will come before Him in humble repentance and believing that He is Lord, confessing that He is Lord. So my friends, if God is convicting you this morning, go to Him. Even now, in the quietness of your heart and the quietness of prayer, you don't need to wait for us. Please don't wait for us. Repent of your sin. Beg Him to forgive you. And you too will find freedom from the slavery of sin. And you too will we'll find sweet fellowship with God that will last in eternity. Lastly, the focus of Psalm 130 is freedom from the wages of sin and the life of the believer. However, there are many reasons that we can find ourselves in the depths of despair and in need of rescue. Sin is certainly one of them. But it may also be physical health, Personal loneliness, a time of spiritual depression apart from sin, those times the ancients called the dark night of the soul when God seems to be far from you for reasons we cannot pinpoint, for reasons we cannot understand. And if you are in the depths of despair over sin or over these other things, the answer is the same. Turn to the Lord. He invites you in Matthew 11. Again, I know you are very familiar with these. Take them to heart. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, of course, if you are in in the depths of sin this morning, the Scriptures call on you. And they're calling loudly. The Holy Spirit is calling on you right now. I know that conviction. I know what it is to ignore it, and I implore you to not do what I did. Turn to the Lord now. Cry out for his mercy. As you've seen, he will restore you. So let's close with these words from yet another psalm Psalm 32. That sums up everything that we've just been talking about. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And down to verse 6. Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, to God, at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come to you indeed and in worship. You are a great and glorious God. We deserve nothing from you. We have nothing without you. But with you, there is plentiful redemption. With you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is purpose in everything we do and everything we experience, good and bad. We think of your promises that all things work for good to those who love God and are called according to your purposes. And we thank you, Lord. We pray for those here, Lord, that know they need you. If they didn't know before, they've heard it now. They need your plentiful redemption. They need it for salvation. And Lord, we pray that you move their hearts towards you, that in their quietness of their hearts right now, that they will reach out to you and humbly confess their sin and plead with you for forgiveness, all with the promise that you will grant that forgiveness. I pray for those here, Lord, who are struggling in their faith, struggling in their lives. You are the answer for that as well. We pray that they will turn to you, whether it is for that forgiveness that guarantees for, for forgiveness, as we read in 1 John 1.9, believers in, in struggling with sin, or those that are struggling with other issues in life, Lord, and you will deliver them from that as you have promised. Thank you for the truth of your word, Lord. Thank you for the Psalms. So Lord, we just uh, give you the rest of our day. We give you our lives to you for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.